Welcome to Imagining the Future of Theological Education, a conversation bringing together diverse perspectives on theological education in America today. This podcast series is coming to you from Christian Theological Seminary and with support from the Henry Luce Foundation. I'm Dr. David Malott, President of Christian Theological Seminary, and my co-host is Dr. Deborah Mullen, Leadership Education Consultant and Professor Emerita at Columbia Theological Seminary. In a series of conversations, Deb and I will be speaking with some of the folks who were part of our study group and other leaders who are informing the future of theological education. We'll chat with faculty and seminary leadership, as well as foundations and researchers exploring provocative questions related to scholarship, leadership, and theological education. And while our chat will span a vast range of topics, one singular thread will run through every episode, imagining what the future of theological education could and should look like. So welcome to the conversation. It's so good to be here with you all. We want to tell you a little bit about the grant that came from the Henry Luce Foundation. In 2017, David and I were invited to host a series of consultations across the country on the current and future direction in theological education. And it was actually during those conversations and our research that it became quite clear that while institutions face diverse issues, They share a common challenge to think strategically and imaginatively about the future, given the landscape of theological education today. And so as the grant wrapped up, we were inspired to widen the conversation in order to share insights we've gleaned with others involved in theological education and how our work is evolving. Our guests today are Dr. Frank Yamada, Executive Director of the Association of Theological Schools, located in Pittsburgh, and Dr. Rachel Mikva, the Rabbi Herman E. Shaman Chair and Associate Professor of Jewish Studies and Senior Faculty Fellow of the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. Today we'll be discussing innovation and change in theological education, including the newly approved ATS standards and the need for interfaith leadership in our communities. So welcome, Frank and Rachel. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to start our first question with a question to Frank. Because of your unique vantage point on this, would you share with us how you see the newly approved ATS standards impacting the future of theological education, particularly with regard to gender justice, racial justice, and equity? And then we have a kind of follow-up behind that one. Thanks, Deborah. It's a great question. And I think the more general answer, let me start there and then maybe move to the more specifics of your question with regard to gender justice, racial justice, and equity. First thing, the standards are remarkably shorter. And because of that, too, they offer one of the themes for our biennial meeting was flexibility. Now, I want to make sure that I underscore that flexibility does not mean leniency. It really is different contextual ways in which schools can inhabit these principles and standards for good education. Now, if we apply that then through the lens of, say, justice, whether it's racial justice or gender justice or equity, one thing that we have to recognize is the Association of Theological Schools is probably one of the most, if not the most, ecclesially diverse organization in North America. It is the one place that I know of where evangelicals, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Unitarians, mainline Protestants of all varieties can actually get around the table and discuss common issues and things. 
So from that vantage point, the way to answer the question about how these standards can help address these is that one of the big themes is really this issue of contextual equality. It's one of the ways in which it's really kind of a hallmark of these standards. And they emphasize the different ways in which schools try to carry out their educational missions. And my sense is that these standards offer some guiding principles that can offer schools ways by which they can measure how well they're doing if that is part of the mission of the school to, for example, do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly, and in the different ways that schools seek to do that. So an evangelical school is going to do racial justice very differently than, say, a place where you, Dr. Mullen, and I had some time to spend at McCormick Theological Seminary. But it enables also the institutions to embody that and to name it in the ways that they've done it historically, theologically, and then to measure their progress and quality based on the way that they self-articulate those standards for justice, whether, again, that's racial justice, gender justice, or other forms of equity. So I defer to Frank, of course, as far more expert on this than I am, and I'm excited about the new standards. I would say at the same time, it's not as explicit as it could be if an accrediting body is to play a robust role in advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion. But it does challenge some previously held assumptions simply by asking why we did it that way, right? And that, I think, is an important move. So moving from thinking about a solitary way of fulfilling an expectation to thinking about what is the value that undergirds it and what are the multiple ways that schools then might do that. So the example that gets tossed around a lot, I think, is a good one having to do with the percentage of people who need to have a BA before they come to graduate theological education. And if instead we focus on the seriousness and quality of the educational atmosphere, we then shift away from a standard that used to disadvantage poor students and communities, pathways to ministry that are not Eurocentric, et cetera. And I think that's an important move. At the same time, the word gender isn't in the standards, the word justice isn't in the standards, and diversity is only one step in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So what Frank said earlier, for all the reasons that we have this huge tent we need to hold together, it's complicated to be more proactive in some of that work. It occurs to me, it strikes me that that's also very encouraging because part of the struggle around words like diversity and equity and inclusion have been, what do those words really mean in context and in practice? And so if these standards then really give birth to ways to articulate diversity that practice differently is understood respectfully across a wider spectrum of these schools, that's a good thing. I would agree. I hear Rachel's point, too, that on the one hand, it it does accommodate a bigger tent. And the challenge is, is it too broad of a principle to meaningfully hold schools accountable, for example? Just one little word about that. I mean, one of the differences in these new standards is we've really gone away from what we used to call the bright red lines. Like, for example, there is no longer that 15% rule. There was a lot of concern, to be honest, when we first had a draft of the standards around the fact that there wasn't something like that. But I think what stands in its place is a more significant principle. Is the person who's being admitted to your school, does he or she have the adequate training and equipping to do graduate level theological education? Whereas a 15% rule 
you didn't have to do that. Right off the top, you could have a number of students that you could accept into your one program as long as they had a BA. Even if that BA was, for example, in another discipline outside of the humanities or a religion, which we all know as theological educators, there's a big learning curve for folks who are, for example, mechanical engineers or even medical professionals to learn the kind of language of graduate level theological education. Now, with regards to diversity, the standard in question is really standard 1.5, and this is a very significant one. What it includes is it requires the school to actually either adopt a publicly accepted statement on diversity, whether it's from a school's denomination or maybe it's from the school's archdiocese, or in some cases with freestanding schools, it's from their mission statement or or some statement of diversity. So there's some self-definition that's required, which is always a good practice when you're dealing with multiple contextualities. And then it then becomes an ongoing conversation with the school and itself and its own history and the school and its visiting team and the board of commissioners. So it's not going to allow schools to just get off the hook. Whereas before, even in the old standards, there was this attention to more traditional language of diversity and inclusion. But in some ways, they became like little boxes that if a school said, well, we have X amount of female faculty, we're good, right? What doesn't happen is those more quality conversations about, well, how are your women faculty treated? What's the culture behind that? Are you improving based on the way that you're designating diversity? So it does, on the one hand, raise the stakes for the conversation in a different kind of way. But you're right. It does lead to some openness that will make some of us uncomfortable, at least in terms of how we envision diversity. When you mentioned the word flexible, Frank, at the beginning, I was thinking, yes, flexible, but probably requiring more work by institutions if they're doing their job well, because they're going to really have to answer those questions that you've raised. How did they come to these positions? I think it also, the conversation sort of highlights this tension that I hear pretty regularly amongst theological educators especially by those who might be considered, I hate to use the word progressive because it's such a, again, another word that means a lot of things, different things to different people, but a kind of a desire in some ways, sometimes for some institution, whether it's ATS or another, to push theological schools in a very specific direction. And I realize accreditors, that's not normally their role, but I think the conversation points to a desire, at least amongst many of us, that would like to see more impetus toward moving in certain directions, not only to incentivize it, but to look for creative ways to incentivize that, I guess is maybe a, the best way to say it. Yeah, and this is a really important point too, David. And again, as myself, a mainline progressive who was a president in a mainline progressive school, for us to do racial equity was so critical to our mission. And we didn't always get it right. But what it didn't get to is this aspect of intersectionality. How do we deal with the fact we could do all the anti-racism training that we would want? We could do it throughout the whole school and the whole school would be on board with that. But we couldn't help folks equip themselves for encounters they would have in the classroom where, say, an LGBTQI candidate for ministry in the Peace USA is having an argument over scripture with a local startup African-American pastor on the South Side, whose theology is maybe more conservative than his or her classmates, but whose social perspectives on race may be aligned in significant ways. So we get all these different aspects. And whereas before in the standards, one could say, well, you have a diverse student body, you're doing okay. It doesn't get these more qualitative kind of aspects of how to do better theological education with regard to diversity. 
I think that it does hold us all more accountable to our mission statements, though I worry that if the mission is historically and presently to continue to train white American cisgendered, heterosexual, able-bodied Protestant men, then a school that is not necessarily being sufficiently challenged to think about what does it mean to continue to do that in our current context? And how much can an accrediting body push in that direction? I mean, for Chicago Theological Seminary, very much like your seminary before you became ED at ATS, we are committed to that intersectional work around gender justice, racial justice, LGBTQ identities and liberation and class injustices and environmental injustices and working at the intersections of all of that. And I think they will help us do that better. But how how does it help them do it better? Usually it's the question, right? Right. Just for one quick, quick comment, too. That's where I think, again, because ATS is a peer reviewing organization, I think that's where the peer review comes in very importantly. Because even to a school that may be serving a particular demographic, as you just named, Rachel, the reality is that those folks are going to be serving in contexts, whether they're congregational contexts or other contexts, where the diversity within those congregations is going to be much greater than the demographics of that particular school. So in order for them to be doing their mission well, they have to attend to those outcomes, right? So that's where the conversation becomes really interesting. And so our hope is that it doesn't really allow for schools to have a pass with regard to diversity, but it'll actually make these conversations more robust in terms of how to improve. That's a good segue, I think, to another question that's on our minds. That is, how important is it for Christian theological institutions to form faculties and students to live and lead in an interreligious and intersectional world? And kind of connected to that, how important is contextual education to teach students the tools needed for public engagement and social justice? We like short answers, right, for podcasts. So very. (laughs) I will second that, very. And now for the qualitative version? (laughs) Well, there are lots of ways schools can do it. I mean, I appreciate, again, segueing from standards, that there is, I think it's 4.3, the standard it's attention to multi-faith and multicultural nature of societies in which students may serve, right? Pairing students about into a world that is very culturally complex. And I think that there are a lot of ways that schools can do this. We're actually spearheading a project with some initial funding from Wabash called Educating Religious Leaders for our multi-faith context. And we're bringing together deliberately theologically and demographically diverse and institutionally diverse schools, so my CGS, Chicago Theological Seminary, and Catholic Theological Union, and Fuller, and Howard Divinity School, and ILIF, and MoMA, and Vanderbilt, to generate models and resources for doing that work, because I think, like everything else, it has to be contextually appropriate and grounded. Yeah, and I would just add that whether it's interfaith work, or whether we're doing intersectional work, I think the value of both these disciplines, and and it relates to contextual education as well, it's the inter part, right? It's the being connected to others who are different than yourself. And that's what seminary education does at its best, but it also does it in the context of contextual education. But I think given our current political and social environment, folks have really lost the capacity to engage difference faithfully. And that's what, at its heart, I think, with both interreligious studies, but interreligious ministries, this is what the work is about, is how to work across religious differences toward a common good, or to be able to articulate the different ways that religions come at these things. 
but also in an intersectional world, because what we're finding out about identities, of course, is that they're very complex, right? And people bring these multiple identities into these contexts. But if we can build people's capacities to work across these differences for such a time as this, I think it's just, it would be an incredible gift, not only to communities of faith, but to the broader public. That's where the hope is, isn't it? Because, you know, it's one thing to be part of a tradition and an industry that has valued a really deep rhetorical narrative about doing that work. It's another thing to be opening some vistas, whether through standards or different practices that actually says, we can't teach you about that here. We can be part of what you learn, but we need partners to teach. And that partnership happens in places outside of our four walls. So for institutions going forward to be more open and able to be more open, not only to do the inter, but the intra-institutional things, I think is is just so exciting to me as a theological educator for the last 35 years. Absolutely. I mean, student-centered contextual learning that engages the cultural complexities is necessary for any kind of relevant theological education, not only to advance social justice, but simply to make that education count and be accountable and responsible to the communities in which they'll serve. I've heard, again, participating in conversations around the growing diversity within theological institutions. We've seen this now for the last several decades, the increasing sense of diversity in our student body. We're bringing together people in ways in which we never would have imagined, probably in the early part of the 20th century. But one of the challenges is we bring all these people together, but we don't teach them how to be together. Like we just assume that if we bring them all together, then it'll work itself out. And so I'm wondering from your perspectives, what do you see as things that help that happen? Like once you bring all these people together, what are some things that institutions need to be doing so that they can take advantage of that contextual moment, that multi-religious intersectional moment? So I can maybe give an uh, an illustration from our work at ATS. As I said, it's a really unique organization. And it's not just because of the diversity of the ecclesial traditions. But it's that second part, the fact that these schools and these leaders from schools can actually work on common work together is, in today's day, just a miracle in my mind. And it's actually a wonderful thing to see. Deb had just rolled off the board of directors uh, for the ETS board of directors. It's a very moving moment that happens this year virtually, but usually in person over dinner, where colleagues who are retiring off the board share a little bit with their colleagues. And the meaningfulness of those expressions of gratitude to their colleagues who are very different than them, some of the arguments that happen in those boardrooms are just very unique to who ATS is. And it happens with both boards, the board of directors and the board of commissioners. And it's just wonderful to see. One of the things that staff have been talking a lot about is a really great friendship had developed on the board of commissioners between two who just rolled off of the board this past year. One is Jeffrey Kwan. He's the president at Claremont School of Theology you know, about as progressive, and Jeffrey's a good friend, about as progressive of a president as we have in ATS schools. And then Steve Lemke, who is at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, the unique thing is that they, both of these gentlemen really had a very similar approach to how they do schools and accreditation. And they just developed this bond and this friendship because of that. But being committed to common work not a common ideology or a common theology, but the common work has really been a breakthrough that I think that's really been something. And so 
one of the things that I wonder about for communities of faith and for theological schools, it seems to me like there's a lot of ground for good common work for us to do. And if we could commit to that, I wonder if we couldn't do a lot more transformation instead of argumentation. I also think it's important to have focused, conscious conversations around the differences that we are bringing together and trying to bridge. And there, again, there are multiple models to do it the way we do it at Chicago Theological Seminary. One way we do it as an early course in the MDiv program is this living into our commitments and affecting social change. So it takes our intersectional commitments as structures of power, privilege, and oppression and recognizes the way these patterns are intersected. So people come to the school because they're committed to racial justice and they don't know anything about these other issues. But as they undertake their passion and interweave it with the passions, commitments, and identities of their peers, we're bridging those differences by understanding how, in fact, our stories are intersected. And We tended to do with religious integration inside a seminary, the same thing we did with racial integration, which is, well, we'll just add diversity and stir and everything will be fine without recognizing the ways in which the institution is structurally X, structurally and historically white, or structurally and historically Christian. And we can't even recognize those privileges unless we start having conscious conversations and then work together to reimagine them. Rachel, I'm, I'm curious. It's been my thought that I'm not old enough and haven't been involved in the church long enough to remember the days of humanism of the 70s. But there was this kind of move for all these differences to look for some distilled sameness. And it seems to me that the conversations have become much different. It's less about trying to find some common element that unites all these different traditions, but it's more in some ways trying to kind of provoke almost like kind of a holy envy of each other's traditions by testifying to the particularities of your own traditions. That could be way off base on that, but it just seems to me that we're in a very different moment for engaging religious difference. I would argue that it's not a binary question, right? I think it's partly still about cultivating common ground and recognizing important similarities. At the same time, I think it's always been, but is now more self-consciously so about recognizing and dignifying difference and caring about those differences and respecting those differences. And then risking transformation in the encounter with difference, not to make me a different religion, but to make my meeting of different religions transform my Jewish identity in important and profoundly constructive and deepening ways. And I think that it's in the capacity of the field to articulate that collection more. There's still some hesitation in certain circles of the theological education world that, you know, you're just trying to make it all the same and find the slowest common denominator religion. And I don't think that was ever the point. I mean, some particular approaches to interfaith work still are interested in that, but I don't think it was ever the central point. And it's certainly not. Now, I think you're right about that. As someone who is old enough to remember the ecumenical spirit of a couple of generations ago and to be, you know, a young adherent of that, I think the mistake we made was thinking that we were in a process of arriving rather than continuing to become. And so the transformational piece, the progressive evolution of our beings and understandings as people of faith and religions was one that I think many who practiced, and I talk about practicing ecumenism, many who practice it believe that, and it informed their lives. 
but I do think that part of the criticism was that it, what did you call it, Frank? Not holy sameness or something that, you know. Holy envy. Yeah. yeah. But there was this distance. from Stendhal, from uh, Christopher Stendhal. Oh, a, a profound phrase that is being challenged, though, by interspiritual people today. Yeah. In important ways. I'll come important. back to that. But Deb, you should finish first. I think the point is that the conversation evolves as does the practice evolve. And so for me, one of the biggest concerns, uh, challenges is not just bringing people together and assuming because they're in the same room, something transformational is going to happen. But the people who are hosting the transformation, the people whose responsibility in the room is to help create the environment and the openness to learning are also challenged. And so, you know, again, as a former dean and two theological institutions that I respect. My concern has been for quite a while the formation of faculty and whom it is we're entrusting with these very important human transactions that take us into these interplaces and intraplaces and particularly important as we now are living in what some people are calling the COVID crisis that has created and is creating what people want to call the new normal. Where is the place of innovation in that? Because all, all of what we're talking about, I think, in terms of the future is innovation to some extent. Looking at what we've done, taking the best of that, bringing it forward, and then being faithful to the people who are coming to our institutions who don't look anything like they did 30 years ago. That's an important thing to raise, and I'm sure all your listeners on the podcast are aware of this, but as we're doing this right now and as we're recording this, we're doing it over Zoom. I mean, this is a COVID kind of conversation. There was a piece that was written by Andy Crouch. He's from Praxis Labs. I think he's, he serves on the board of a theological school, too. I think it's Fuller Theological Seminary. But he was talking a little bit like when, when the pandemic was just hitting in the spring and saying the analogy was it's going to be more of a mini ice age than it is going to be a blizzard that we can just weather. It's going to change us profoundly. And we have to be thinking of it more in the intermediate and long term than just as a short term duration. So it is an important question. And I do wonder to what extent it's obvious that technology and digital technologies is going to play a role in this. But what do these innovations look like? But it's certainly things that schools are having to adapt to. And I would say that the moment that schools have been in is in the spring, they were trying to do this kind of emergency remote delivery. It's like, oh, my gosh, how do we get things that were face to face online? or on-site, how do we move that online? And a lot of schools did that faithfully. But again, what if that's not just a short-term solution? What if even when we are allowed to get that together face-to-face, the things, the way that we gather and the opportunities we have for gathering are going to be profoundly changed? One of the things that Chicago Theological Seminary was one of the first schools to do was to be granted by the Board of Commissioners an exception to the standards to do a completely online and div. And again, what I'm not saying is that online technologies are the future. We've known that they were going to change the game for education for a long time. And they haven't had the disruptive force in education as much as folks had forecasted. But we're certainly in a moment where we're going to have to leverage the role that digital technologies and online technologies are going to play in the future of theological education. And that's really our innovative moment at this particular time. And it's the moment that COVID-19 has really kind of brought to the forefront. And I think that one of the challenges of this moment is to move beyond the digital technology of getting the education done 
and really learn how to foster digitally mediated relationships and build that same potential for transformation and peer-to-peer learning in expanding opportunities for geographically distant partnerships, right? Now you don't have to just think about trying to find partners in your neighborhood, but can in fact go further if we can figure out how to foster deep transformational relationship through digital means. I want to make a distinction between humanism, which I see as one of many potential choices for a life stance, right? Secular humanism and other ways in which people might describe their humanism. I want to distinguish that from another way of orienting around religion, which is sort of an interspiritual orientation that recognizes or feels compelled by multiple traditions or aspects of multiple traditions. And those looking for sort of lowest common denominator, let's all just be this one thing. And that obviously, by the way I described them, I'm discrediting the last of them to some extent. At the same time that I would give serious attention to those people who are thinking about what does interfaith ministry look like today, including people who deliberately want to come together, not all of the same faith, but they want to worship in space of religious diversity. They want to gather in space of religious diversity. So what does interfaith ministry mean? That's an important and relevant and legitimate question today, as is the role of secularism. I mean, I feel like in embrace of our religiously plural context, theological education still unfortunately sometimes treats secularism as the enemy, as opposed to another voice inside our public square. And the questions are how we embody the discourses of difference in our public space. Great. That's a wonderful segue into the final question about, so what are you imagining the future of theological education? What would you like to see happen? I'm going to speak a little from my own tradition. So I'll claim it as my own Protestant reformed kind of version of Christianity. I think one of the things that I would like to see happen is, you know, every religion, even the most conserving of religions, not conservative, but conserving, ones have undergone what we Protestants or what Protestants have called reformations. And whether we want to use the language of reformation or not, they've gone through these transformations. In some ways, it's a little sub-theme that's running through our conversation. We're talking about the ways in which difference can transform each other in community. It seems to me that we are in one of those moments when our religious traditions are trying to transform. They're trying to become something new And at the same time, whether it's Sankofa, kind of uh, remembering and recovering of the ancestors and making sure that they come with you, your head is facing backward as you have a deposit for the future moving forward. But we are in one of those moments. And my hope is that that's how we would frame this moment, that it's, it's this opportunity. We have all the ingredients. We have the urgency. We have the technology. We have the creativity and we have the need. And it's really an opportunity for our religious traditions to begin to rethink themselves and reform themselves in faithful ways. And I think that if I can have a sub-hope for the future, is I think that theological institutions and schools and seminaries have often played a very large role in that. And educational institutions going further back than that have played a very large role in these transformations. And I think what we're going through right now is one of those transformations. And it's happening because of what's happening with religious participation in North America. And it's happening because of the state of our religious institutions. And it's happening because of COVID-19 right now. Our religious traditions are transforming. 
And I just hope for and am really hoping that the, the theological schools will lean into this future as a reforming and transforming moment. One of the things I'd really like to see theological education become is really focused on lifelong learning communities, right? Rather to be so degree centric and so professionally oriented, and then it's over, right? You have your degree or you come back once a year because we have alumni X, Y, Z, but really rather to see lifelong learning communities that I think would help the people out in the field meet the moment because the moment's going to keep changing. We are in a period of rapid change. So that's one thing. The other way I think about the future of theological education is to move in incrementally more and more toward interactive, i.e. student-centered kind of learning, integrated learning that's, you know, not one course that's the life of the mind and a different course that's the flourishing of the soul and a different course that's development of your professional skills, but rather integrating all of that and also integrated with the rest of the world so that it's part of art and science and environment. And then contextualized, which we spoke about earlier, deeper integration with religious and other communities, contextual education as a thread throughout, not an episode in students' theological education. And I think that will, among other things, make us more accountable to issues of justice. When I started my vocational journey in theological education 30 years ago or whatever, It really started in contextual education before there was a name for contextual education. When McCormick at that time was doing, continued through its history, but in that section of our history, was really pushing the boundaries between institutions. And I think in a very wise period understood that the life of an institution in so many ways is fundamentally to preserve itself. And I think because of leadership at the time, we were able to position ourselves between institutions and understand that it is in those thin spaces between institutions, in those contexts that are created between those institutions that students could experience profound learning that academic institutions hadn't begun to think about or give language to. And so what began to happen was this transformation, as Frank has described it, and this reformation of institutions and realizing in order to learn and to grow and to sustain their own life, we, theological institution, had to become partners, integrated community members with hospitals and jails and counseling services and things like that. So to see this COVID movement beyond the moment we're in as uh, opportunistic in the best sense of the word, I think is, is so hopeful for us as we continue in, in this theological education vocation. I would just say amen to that. Maybe to tie what you just said together with what Rachel said, if there's ways for us as theological schools to think of ourselves as communities of learning that are learning with each other into this new future. That's the way to think, not just theological schools, I'm thinking of all of our institutions. If we can think of different ways to partner with each other in this lifelong process of what we're learning and how we're learning to be able to do what we do better. I love the way that you were thinking, Rachel, in terms of thinking what you were thinking as small, but in some ways, that's what we're moving back to, right? How to create those essential communities and community ties and partnerships to do the common good. 
it's becoming clear to me that the, the relationship between seminaries and religious communities also needs to change and evolve as those communities really struggle with what their vocation is in the world about their ministry. And they're being challenged to think about not just the people who are members of their community, but who's in their neighborhood, who are their next door neighbors, who are the people in their city. I think, you know, seminaries have the same kind of responsibility. And I think those who are thinking strategically within theological institutions really do have to think about who do we really want to teach? And it's not that we're going to abandon degrees, but the truth of the matter is, is that if we stick only to degrees, I think we will not be fulfilling our mission and our responsibility in the world. And so we've got to think about what that looks like. And and David, but it's not only who do we really want to teach? I mean, that's a question of privilege. I mean, is how are we prepared to teach the people who are coming? And sometimes that preparation is just right outside our door. Just got to go and ask. Right. And with the changing nature of religious identity, I think the challenges for the communities and for leaders out there include things that for which people are already out there, they did not get training, you know, and, and meeting this moment. I think we have to take their experience from the field and the academy's capacity for, for engaging that intellectually as well as spiritually and pool all our resources to think, how do we meet the needs of the moment? Right. I also appreciate that, although I speak as an institutionalist, somebody who's spent my whole life within institutions, I believe in institutions, I also appreciate the presence of innovative and subversive models. The folks who aren't going to get ATS approved, you know, who are saying, well, we're just going to do it all out in the field. And that's how we're going to prepare our leaders. And I think that challenges us all and it educates us all and gives us other ways of thinking about our common vocation. Absolutely. And we saw a lot of that in our study group. Mm-hmm. That was the lifeblood of what we saw and, and the possibility that that could, you know, in some way be joined with these institutions that we love and are part of us as well. But we know that there's this other life outside and we, our eyes need to be trained to see it. One of our newest board members on the ATS board, so I wouldn't say that this person took your place, Deb, but one of the incoming class Yes. of ATS board of directors, board members. I actually had to make a case for her because her title is she's a, a dean or a provost of a seminary, but it's not an accredited seminary. It's at City Seminary in New York, Maria, Maria Lu Wong. Yeah, and they're just doing incredibly creative things. And to not think of this person as a partner in the educational enterprise of theological education seemed to me to just be, we would have been uh, much less without her at the table. But that's the reality, and that's what we learned from what we're learning from Bible Institutes and the training of Hispanic leaders and Latino and Latina leaders in, the, in especially Pentecostal traditions. There is so much more of a broader ecology with regard to theological education. I'm not sure there's a better place to land than on that note. There's so much more reason to raise our hands rather than wring our hands at this point in time. So we are at the last moments. And if there were last 10 seconds from anyone, we would certainly enjoy that. But as we expected, David, this has been a wonderful hour of conversation. It's hard to imagine where we could shave off any of this. But thank you, Dr. Mikva and Dr. Yamada for joining us today, because you have given us a lot to think about as we all face the future of theological education. 
The good news is we know this conversation is not over. And for these podcasts, there will be more episodes in this series. So we say to our listeners, we certainly hope you've enjoyed this one and that you will check out the rest of them. Thank you, Rachel and Frank.